Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK centric on the big issues of the day. So, Peter, here we are again to record the latest episode of the podcast, and we're going to revert to talking about a subject which is very close to our hearts, and particularly close, I think, to yours, which is the performance of quality growth as a style of investing in today's very uh, interesting and occasionally turbulent markets. Uh, As we approach the end of uh, 2021, we're coming into the end of the first full year since the pandemic broke out uh, uh, last year, and we went through lockdowns and so on. And the the virus is still not lying down, as we know. It's a new variant has appeared, uh, the latest one, and uh, rate of infections is rising or very high in a number of countries in Europe and the US. But we're going to look at the markets and how they performed. And I think I might just kick off, Peter, by saying before we just rehearsed your uh, approach and why quality growth is such a, a fine strategy for all seasons by just talking about what's happened to the market this year. I mean, I think uh, when we started this podcast, we would be a little surprised perhaps to find that the global equity markets have performed so extraordinarily well uh, since the uh, pandemic broke out. If we take out that interruption in early 2020, when the markets plunged briefly, most equity markets are considerably higher than they were before the pandemic ever appeared, which is not something I think that many people would have expected. Uh, What do you make of that? Well, good morning, Jonathan. It's very nice to be back online. I couldn't have put it better myself. Not only has the market been very good this year, but also the market was very good last year with the blip at the beginning or in March of last year, especially because the market has once again fooled everybody. And the way the markets have developed both last year and this year was completely contrary to what most observers were expecting and how they positioned themselves. So you've had the massive black swan of the coronavirus followed by the collateral black swan of inflation followed by the collateral, collateral black swan of more durable inflation than what was predicted. And you saw that Jay Powell has thrown in the towel and abolished the word transitory. He's lost it in his comments. And so any Moses Methuselah or moderately experienced investor would have expected the bond markets to go into a bloodbath, followed by the stock markets to go into a bloodbath, and, of course, a rotation into value to the detriment of quality growth. All this has not happened. Uh, The market has caught its participants unawares. So as you quite rightly point out, the stock market and equity prices went up. There was a tentative rotation into value. So you had banks and cyclical businesses. Uh, They enjoyed their day in the sun. But as at today, they haven't durably managed to outperform. And most importantly, bond prices have not only kept their level, but they've gone up even more to the consternation of all those people who believe that 
inflation increases will lead to a drawing back in quantitative easing, which is happening, which is going to put upward pressure on bond deals, which has not happened. So they can't both be right, the bond markets as well as the bearish participants, and above all the inflation rates, they cannot both be right, or maybe they can. We'll see. Indeed. Well, as you say, I can't remember how many times I've uh, had cause to write or to observe or to to say that uh, the way things have turned out in a year is completely different to what most people predicted. And that is, I suppose you could say, one of the the glories and the abiding features of uh, financial markets, uh, which is that they constantly confound uh, expectations, particularly expert expectations, which are often (laughs) proved to be wildly off the mark. Well, let's go back to talking about um, exactly what constitutes uh, the kind of quality growth stock that you are investing in, that your your company invests in and your funds invest in. Uh, and very briefly, just remind us of what the characteristics are so that if uh, listeners are not uh, as familiar with this process as uh, you and I are, of course. But uh, quickly remind us, uh, perhaps give us a couple of examples of the kind of companies that uh, you are investing in through your funds. I'm glad you've asked this question because most people have an idea of what growth means. Most people have an idea of what quality means and what value means, but few people actually can pinpoint what the quality growth philosophy is all about, especially because the companies that really adhere to the rules of quality growth are so few and far between as to, in my opinion, put them into a a special asset class. But that's another question. So in my thinking, the typical quality growth investment or company has to fulfill what we call the 10 golden rules of quality growth investment, which are, and I'll just rattle them off. Number one, a scalable business model. Number two, superior industry growth. Number three, consistent industry leadership within that industry growth. Number four, a sustainable competitive advantage. Number five, strong organic growth. Number six, wide customer and geographic diversification. Number seven, low capital intensity leading to high returns on invested capital. Number eight, solid financial position. Number nine, transparent accounts. And last but not least, number 10, superior corporate governance. I could talk to you for hours about each of these 10 golden rules. And if you look at some examples, you will see, for example, that uh, in the superior industry growth sphere, what are we talking about today? Digitalization, which has been very much in evidence during the two years of lockdown and semi-lockdown. The wave of digitalization has continued across the world. And there, one of the leaders is Dassault System in France, nothing to do with the aviation company. Another example is the cashless payment systems. More and more people are paying not with cash, but with other forms of payment. And there you've got companies like MasterCard and Visa, which although they are now being challenged by fintech and a number of other headwinds, they nonetheless continue to produce solid earnings growth. So you've got these 10 golden rules which have enabled the quality growth companies, the purest ones, to continue increasing their earnings, 
maintaining their margins, using their pricing power, and producing high returns on invested capital and growth, despite all the headwinds that you mentioned. Yes. So uh, I guess one could say that the key point about this is that this is a very demanding list of criteria. So uh, there are thousands of companies around the world, uh, but there are only a small number that actually meet all these demanding criteria. I mean, if one was saying that one was applying this to one's personal life and once I was look, going out looking for a spouse, you'd have to spend quite a lot of time looking to find the perfect spouse, the one who met all the criteria that uh, uh, that one might want in that particular regard. And so as you do that uh, with your stocks, I'm not going to talk about your personal life. I'm sure you made a quality growth investment there. How many stocks around the world do you think actually qualify for to, to even to be considered by you? I mean, it's a pretty small number, is it not? Before I answer that, I find it very amusing that you mentioned the spouse analogy, because when you first interviewed me about 20 years ago, I made the same analogy saying that before you get married, you're going to do your basic homework to make sure that you're marrying the right person, which I did. And I just celebrated my 40 years wedding anniversary last week. Close brackets. What was your question then, Jonathan? <laughs> there aren't many stocks in your universe. How many stocks in the world do you think actually meet all those criteria sufficiently well in order to be given the favor of your investment? Very few. And of course, the more hard and fast rules you have, the more difficult it is to find them. These 10 golden rules that I rattled off, you know, they're our own investment philosophy rules. I'm not saying that everyone else who espouses quality growth has the same rules. These are very much our own rules that come from experience. To answer your question, there are probably 50,000 plus companies quoted on the world's stock exchanges. And if you filter those through, which we do all the time, in order to arrive at proper, pure quality growth businesses, which will give you superior returns over the decades with an inferior degree of risk, and we can talk about that, you probably won't find more than about five dozen so, therefore, these are a pretty rare beasts. But the great beauty of the uh, kind of stocks you're looking for is, of course, that they are they tend to be highly visible because they tend to be established businesses. They tend to have uh, large uh, market capitalizations uh, and they tend to have um, significant assets around the place. So it's not actually a question of having to travel around the world physically to find these things. They're all pretty uh, transparent. And so the question really is, of those 70 stocks, you only pick a handful. You don't even pick all those, I know. Um, so what are the criteria that actually enable you to put something from that universe into your one of your funds? The first criterion is concentration, which again will surprise you because you normally would hear about diversification in order to lower your risk. Diversification, we all know, is protection against your own ignorance, as the great Warren Buffett said. But of course, there's no reason why you should have a diversified portfolio if you're gunning for the best in the first place. So you gun for the best and then out of the best, you pick the best of the best and you then put together a portfolio of somewhere between 20 and 25 shares. Now, that's my style or our style in my company. There are a lot of people who will have two or three or four times that number in their portfolio, but they will still claim to have a superior, qualitatively superior 
growth portfolio. That is then, if you like, a matter of taste. But of course, remember that the fewer companies you have to analyze whether or not they're in your portfolio, the fewer companies you have to analyze, the deeper you can go in your analysis and your research, most of which will be qualitative in nature, most of which will happen behind the scenes, and most of which will be, especially regarding the outcome, entirely unconventional. But nonetheless, the last two years, Jonathan, which have been particularly difficult, the last two years have actually shown that even in this difficult environment, macroeconomic and microeconomic environment, these companies have actually shown themselves to be of a much higher quality and having a much more durable growth trajectory. In other words, that they've really proven themselves to be long-duration assets. And as a long-duration asset, you would expect that to do well in uh, the current climate. I mean, the kind of returns you've achieved, I looked them up this morning, and in your uh, World Growth and American Fund, you've been um, compounding these total returns to shareholders at a rate of somewhere between uh, 23 and 27% over over three and five years. So that's uh, a pretty remarkable uh, rate of return. And I guess it does raise the question whether... Uh, as a result of that, these particular stocks are becoming rather expensive. And of course, you will hear people say that. And you'll say, as you pointed out, that people have often been saying that for a long time. But your portfolios cannot continue growing at 25% per annum indefinitely. That would be uh, a remarkable thing. So what do you think is the likely pattern from here over a, a medium to longer term horizon? I was sure you were going to put this question to me, and I think it's an extremely fair question. And it's a question that we discuss all the time. I would put it slightly differently. I would say that the earnings of the next few years seem to have been in part, as they say, baked in the, into the share prices of today. But of course, that's not the same thing as saying that the PE ratios of the portfolio are simply too high compared with the P.E. ratios of the index or of other businesses, which in any case are not comparable. You can't simply take a P.E. number and then come to a conclusion because it's much more complicated than that. And even though P.E. ratios are widely used, they are also widely misused because there are other factors in there which are much more important in determining what the fair value of a business is and then by comparison with the share price to determine whether the business is overvalued, fairly valued or undervalued. Having said this, I agree with you. I don't think that we can expect 20% plus compounded returns for the next three to five years. I don't think so. But that doesn't bother me too much because they are long-duration assets, and I'm a long-duration investor with an unlimited time horizon, and I'm expecting that over the long duration, the earnings of a company will drive the share price, and that there will be a correlation between the superior earnings growth in the business and therefore the superior return to the investor that comes 
from the share price. The best way of not participating in this is to take a short-term view. So, to wrap it up, your question, it is unlikely that we will have the same returns in the next three to five years as we've had in the last three to five years. That doesn't mean that the investor should exit these companies, but it does mean that he needs to spend more time analyzing them, making sure that everything's working behind the scenes and not be too obsessed with today's and tomorrow's share price. So I guess another question then it would go like this. I mean, you're quite right about earnings. Uh, short-term earnings and price earnings ratios are frankly fairly meaningless. Uh, but far more important from your point of view is the, as you mentioned it, one of your golden rules is the return on capital. And uh, over the very long term, you would expect the kind of share price return you get from a company to be roughly equivalent to the rate of return on its invested capital. Uh, I think you would agree with that. But of course, the question is the life cycle of these companies. Do they, you know, the average company, I think, lasts about 20 years uh, at most, a listed company. But by their nature, your expectation is that the companies you're investing in will, on the whole, survive for longer than that and indeed can be held over uh, multiple decades. Uh, would I be right about that? I'll start with the second half of your question first. Um, nothing lasts forever. But of course, even that is relative. And um, if you take one of the oldest companies in one of the silent portfolios, it's um, a French company called Hermès, which you know very well because it's a household name. And Hermès may be because it's a family enterprise. And family enterprises are usually better run. But that was started, that business, in 1837 by Thierry Hermès, and it's still going strong. So that's a long, long time, and there aren't many like that. And what you say is right, but, you know, steady as she goes, there are still plenty of companies out there on the quality growth universe which have been around a long time, whose demise has been predicted many, many times over, who have fooled the pessimists and are still going strong. So that's a difficult question to answer how long, but the answer is very long because they're long duration assets with a terminal value. To come back to your first question about whether the investor can expect the same return on his investment as is achieved as a return on invested capital by the company itself, I would say that that's only half the equation. It's not quite that simple. What you need to have at the same time as the high return on invested capital and superior return on invested capital is a growth rate, which is not only superior to the average growth rate out there, but which is financed by the high returns on invested capital and the high incremental returns on incrementally invested capital. So it has to feed on itself. And these returns on capital have to be superior to the growth rate in order to avoid a, a value destruction. So they have to serve to finance the future growth. So the return on invested capital is going to be a number that is going to be higher than the earnings per share growth rate. But of course, both these numbers are going to be well into double digits the former, the return on capital, hopefully more than 20%, and the growth rate in earnings somewhere in the mid-double digits. If you have those two factors at work, 
and all other things being equal in the 10 golden rules, you're on to a pretty good thing, Jonathan. Yes. Now, I don't want to give you uh, an online heart attack here by asking this question, but I'm going to risk it anyway, which is to say that, <laughs> of course, some people come along to you and would say, well, that's fantastic. You've made 25% per annum. But just think how much more money you could have made if you'd put some leverage into your fund. And actually, you could have, as we say, juiced the returns even more, particularly when interest rates are so low. I mean, you would seem to be that's the kind of thing that a, a hedge fund would do. But I think... Um, well, as I say, I'm risking your, your health by even asking the question, but tell me how you would <laughs> respond to that. In two ways. First of all, if I did that myself personally, I borrowed money to invest in a quality growth portfolio. That would be my problem. And that has to do with myself and myself. So some people do that, as you say, quite rightly. Other people don't do that. I don't do that. I'm not lured by the fact that you can borrow money very cheaply today. So that's a personal choice. What is more important is, of course, if the companies themselves lever up their balance sheets on the same basis that money is cheap and that they can free up some trapped capital and produce even better returns. That is something which is definitely shunned by the pure quality growth investor and by the pure quality growth business. And that is also enshrined in the 10 golden rules, the one called a solid financial position, where we have actually one of the few quantitative measurements called net debt to EBITDA, earnings before interest tax, depreciation, amortization, which is not allowed to go more than two and a half years, which is by the way, not at all the reality in our portfolio. It should not take more than two and a half years for a company to retire its entire debt through its EBITDA. But, you know, if that goes wrong, and we've seen endless examples of that, if that goes wrong, then you will see the stock market immediately shifting the focus from the economic value of that business towards the default risk and you've seen that in moments when bond yields went up, even just for a short while, the over-indebted companies' share prices went down big time because the market shifted its focus towards default risk. And that's something that we really don't need. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you another question, which is about the experience of investors in your fund or something, a relevant issue for them. And that is... Of course, we don't live in a perfect world and the uh, financial markets are not immune from moments of, uh, shall we say, emotional reaction where they move very sharply in response to things that over time perhaps they shouldn't. Um, but I'm just looking at your record of your world growth fund here and uh, I'm looking at the down months. So, so in September this year, you were down 6.9% in the world growth fund. You're up 25% year to date, I hasten to add, but you were down 6.9% in one month. And then last year, of course, during the pandemic, you were down 7% and 9% in a couple of months. And then in 2018, you were down 7.8% in uh, in a month and so on. So this is volatility, it's something we have to get used to in the stock market. I mean, I can't imagine that the performance of your companies by definition would have changed by 7% in a month. But this is something that you have to live with. And uh, I guess something you have to explain to your investors, they've got to be patient to get these returns. We never stop explaining that to our investors. We never stop telling them that volatility is not risk, despite everything they hear and read. 
Personally, Jonathan, I love these down months because it gives me an opportunity to put my money to work in as much as I've got some spare cash hanging around. And I could tell you a hand on my heart, I have done that systematically. Every time we've had one of these bad months, I have given the order to buy some more shares in my own fund. I eat my own cooking. I try to argue the same thing in front of my investors. The examples that you took, like September and one or two other examples, they had various causes, probably a general scare, probably the resurgence of some variant, probably the or a rotation into value or a counter rotation, whatever you want to call it, or some sharp words from central bankers. There are always some reason, some reason for this to happen. And it often happens at the end of a quarter. I mean, September is no coincidence that it happened in September because that's you're approaching the end of the year. A lot of scared fund managers want to reap the benefits while they can and wait until January comes along and then take a new view of matters, which, of course, is, in my opinion, not the way to do it. So, yes, there are bouts of volatility. But the important thing is, I'd like to say, and this is very important that we remember, what counts for long-duration asset quality growth investors is not the volatility of the share price, but whether there is any volatility in the underlying earnings stream and in the underlying business trajectory. I would rather have a volatile share price and a smoothly running quality growth business that grows. I would rather have that than having a lumpy earnings progression, but a smooth share price return because that would be the share price tail wagging the business dog. And that's turning investment on its head. Okay, so we've covered pretty much what you'll be doing and the and the, uh, the argument for it all. And I'm going to perhaps finish off by just asking you to do something which I know you can't really answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because that's what we do. We like to challenge each other. And my question is, Given your understanding of what's going on around the world, give us a, th a thought process about what might happen in the 12 months ahead in terms of what the central banks do, what the bond market might do. And of course, it's not going to change how you invest, but uh, give us a perspective on that and whether you think that uh, will have any impact on the way the market values the companies you own. I will do that, but I must warn you in advance that when I tell you what I think is going to happen, you may decide never to talk to me again. <laughs> I doubt that somehow, Peter. <laughs> you certainly will challenge me on that in, say, a couple of years' time. As to the question itself, I'm used to that because you have asked me that on various occasions. And so far, that's been okay. Now, I think that central banks are going to embark on tapering, which will probably be followed by a little bit of interest rate increases next year. I don't know how much. But I think it'll be done in the context of inflation not being so nasty because of the base effects. And I also think, therefore, that bond yields are not contrary to what a lot of bond fund managers are saying who exited the bond market a long time ago. I don't see bond prices falling and I don't see bond yields going up big time. I continue to see in real terms the bond market returns to be negative 
And so I continue to see that underpinning share prices on the whole. And I therefore don't think that the downside risk for the equity investor is higher than the potential return that he will reap by remaining in the stock market. So to put it another way, the honeymoon of Tina and FOMO is still going on very nicely. And I don't see too much cause for concern, even though there will be lots of worry out there. But to sum it up, the wall of worry is required for the markets to be continuing on their upward trajectory. Well, I think that's a very good note on which to finish. Of course, I think one might caveat just by saying that, of course, we all know from experience that uh, everything we say when we look forward is based on what we know at the present. But uh, there is always the unexpected, as you uh, pointed out at the very beginning. There are unexpected things that happen. And uh, the pandemic was a good example two years ago when it first broke out. But uh, who knows what will happen this year in terms of unexpected events or black swans, as you mentioned. But uh, I think that's a very uh, encouraging prognosis, uh, Peter. And therefore, on that note, I'd like to uh, thank you yet again for your time. And we will uh, obviously be watching with great interest to see whether the world pans out as you've uh, expressed it. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan, for that very interesting discussion. As always, I look forward to the next one. And meanwhile, my word in God's ear. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Thank you, Peter. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.